Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're so glad that you're joining us here this morning. That was pretty weak. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. There we go. Good morning. Good morning to you watching online, wherever you might be around the world today. We're really glad that you're joining us here this morning uh, also. Uh, as Josh just said, we are continuing in our pre-summer series of the book of Revelation. And so if, if you've got a Bible this morning, physically or electronically, I'd love you to again turn to Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to spend some of our time there together. Let me re-remind you, whether you're joining us for the first time today or you've been with us for a while. Many people approach the book of Revelation with fear. They misunderstand it. Many people make millions of dollars writing books on the book of Revelation, not thinking about it. And the point is this. What is the book of Revelation really about? We always need to ask ourselves the question, what was the original purpose? And it was simple. Three things. It was written to Christians 2,000 years ago in seven churches so they could walk with Jesus in a closer way. It was not a mystery to them. It was understood. Here's the second thing. It was written to Christians 2,000 years ago that were not just trying to walk closer with Jesus. They were being persecuted. They were experiencing severe persecution. And if you talk to Christians around the world today, those who also suffer at the hands of injustice, they will tell you that the book of Revelation is one of the closest books to their heart because of its message. Third of all, the book of Revelation was written to the world and the church to basically tell us God's last view on everything. And really, if you want to summarize the book of Revelation, it's this. God wins, right? That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Now, in the middle of that, though, we have these stories of churches, gatherings just like this, and great suffering. And so as we prayed this year and we thought about it, we decided to walk through each one of the churches to see what Jesus was saying to them and to us as a community. So like I said, welcome to week four in this series based on these first three chapters in the book of Revelation. Jesus, time and time again, comes to the original audience and basically says, I'm here to affirm you, I'm here to correct you, I'm here to motivate you. Now, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for years or only days or months, if you are joining us here or online this morning and you are not a Christian, but you were desperately trying to understand who Jesus is, or if you're not seeking at all, this is the moment for you. At this very moment, Jesus is about to come among us by his spirit, and he is going to speak. And the question that I will pose to you this morning and myself is this, are we willing this morning, no matter who we are, age, stage, gender, background, ethnicity, are we willing to hear are we willing to listen? Are we willing to see? Are we willing to answer? Today we move to another city of ancient Turkey. If you took the coastal road north from Smyrna, 40 miles, and then turned inland another 10 miles off the Aegean Sea, you suddenly come to the impressive capital city of Asia Minor, the city of Pergamum. Pinney called this, store, this city the most famous and most distinguished city of Asia in its time. During the power of Greece, pre-Rome, it was the jewel of Hellenistic culture. It had a library of 200,000 volumes. Many scholars believe that this is the city where parchment paper was actually invented. The population fluctuated between 120 and 200,000 people. It was the center of power for all of Rome in this area. They had a long history with Rome. All the way back in 133 BC, Italius III bequeathed his kingdom to Rome, gave it to them as a gift. So in this city, for context, 
Allegiance to Rome was stronger probably here than any other city in Asia Minor. And worshipping Caesar as a god was strongest here also. Again, it was the worshipping of Caesar, plus the supposed many other gods you could choose from, that started putting followers of Jesus into an unavoidable conflict with the local authorities. This church, as we will soon see, though, is interesting. It is a mix of courageous witness and compromise all in one box. Here's how it begins in Revelation 2, verse 12. You can read with me. To the angel of church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. The image is a strong one here, and don't be quick to run by it. It's a powerful image. It shows us that Jesus is no pushover. Back in week one and two, we read on that amazing reflection of Jesus. And one of the most profound descriptions of Jesus is in Revelations 1.16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Here's the point. When Jesus speaks, there is life and death. There is perfect judgment. When Jesus speaks, things from nothing become something. When he speaks, there is no need to wonder if he truly understands, if he, if he is being truthful. He is not affected by anything that might skew his words. He is perfect. His words are perfect. His thoughts are perfect. Jesus has never been affected by sin in his mind. He is not neurotic. He is not codependent. Here's the point. He is not one of us. When he speaks... One thing takes place. It's such a rare commodity in our culture, such a rare experience. Do you know what it's called? Truth. Now, why does Jesus choose to emphasize this part of his DNA, this part of his reality? Why does he choose to give this characteristic of himself to the church in Pergamum? Well, the answer is twofold. One of it's, one of it's about affirmation. The other is actually about confrontation. Here's what he's basically saying. He's saying, I'm coming to encourage you. Now, we read this and we think of an odd image that Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. But people in this city would have immediately resonated with this image. See, as I've already mentioned, this is the capital city of Asia Minor in this province. It's Rome's power center for the whole region. And since this was the provincial capital, the governor was given the right to execute anyone he wanted at will. Now, that ability in Latin, ready, was called the right of the sword. So as reality became clearer and clearer and clearer, as Christians, just like you or myself, started to having to make decisions not to obey the law because it started to force us to violate our allegiance, our truth, and our walking in power connected to Jesus, some of them began to realize they might even be killed for this, and they live in the city where execution could happen quickly. And yet Jesus shows up to this local church and gives them assurance that it is he who holds the true sword, not Rome. Jesus, not the governor, has real power over life and death. He is judged. The governor is not the judge. God, in the end, is in control of the now and not yet. And basically he's saying this, you may actually have to die for your faith in this life, but Jesus is reminding them, yes, they may take your life with the sword now, but let me reassure you, my sword lasts forever. So they begin to understand that though they may have to sacrifice something, the one they worship is truly in control. But there's more here. Jesus loves his church. He actually calls the local church in all of his expressions his bride. 
And so he also has strong words for those who are prophets, leaders, and teachers who appear to represent him but are false teachers. They may know or not know that they are doing this, but he is coming to actually declare war on false teachers. So Jesus comes, and this is how he begins to speak into their situation. Can you imagine gathering at this church or the church you go to on a Sunday morning and hearing these words declared over you, your church, and your city? Verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Can you imagine? Oh, that's comforting. Mm. Satan has his throne in your city. I know you live in this city, he says. This is your permanent place of residence. You love this city. You were born here. Your grandfather comes from here. Your great-grandfather. Your pride is connected to this. But something else also lives among you in this city. It is a power. It is a danger. It is not just a fallen spirit. It is the fallen spirit, which is the fullest incarnation of hatred towards God and his people. Satan, the accuser, the true and ultimate source of resistance to God and his people, lives in your city. Now, never forget that this angel that led the rebellion against God before time and then invited humanity into his rebellion lives in your city. And then he says, and oh, by the way, his throne is here. Now, this is not just a metaphor for effect. We as modernists, of course, want to dismiss Satan and say, well, isn't that metaphorically interesting? What they really mean is it's just a really bad place. No, no. Jesus is saying that a supernatural entity that existed before the beginning of time that hates him and hates you because you're made in his image is here. And it's interesting that Paul taught this too. Paul taught that idols and religious systems and other systems that oppose God are nothing within themselves. But what is behind them and the power source connected to them is very real. Whether you choose to believe it or not does not dismiss his reality. So Jesus comes to this church and says, Satan has his throne in your city. Now this would also make great sense to Christians living in Pergamum. And many people who would visit the city would immediately connect to this image. And I found this out this week. It's intriguing. Here's how one historian summarizes that. The most spectacular part of this architectural magnificent city was the upper terrace of the citadel that was full of all sorts of sacred buildings and royal buildings. Now, of all of that, the most remarkable thing was the great, ready, throne of Zeus that jutted out near the top of the mountain. Zeus, interestingly, was called Savior. Interesting. And around his altar was covered in symbols of snakes. Around this altar, there was a huge colonnade, 120 by 112 feet, and the throne itself was 18 feet high. So Christians are hearing this, and Jesus comes along and says, oh, by the way, Satan lives in your city, and his throne is there, and immediately every Christian goes, oh, I know that throne, and they just did this. It's right up there. The throne of Zeus is the throne of Satan. Yes, it's just myth in one sense, but the ancient spirit behind it promoting lies and deception is also very real. But it doesn't just stop there. There's more. The kingdom of darkness in this time in this city took so many other forms. Here, Athena, Dionysus, and Eclipius was worshipped here also. Now, the last god, the god of healing called Eclipius, was the god of the city. And it was the symbol, uh, its symbol was the serpent. People from all around the world traveled to be healed in this city. Now, in honor of Eclipius, a part of, of the ceremony was they would use snakes to, to heal people. 
And when all the injured people from around the world would show up, they would allow non-venomous snakes to roam throughout the hospital wards. Isn't that the type of hospital you want to go to? Now, you know the symbol as a modern person. It's the symbol of medicine. It's the two snakes wrapped around a pole. That is the foundation of this. Ecclesiastes, this, this God, the God of healing, is in the form of a snake. Now, think about all the images so far. Snakes, false saviors, idols. If you flip ahead to Romans chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 12, Revelation 12 is the summary of history before time, during time, and at the end of time. Just watch the images and descriptions, and all this makes sense. It says before the beginning of time that there was a great war in heaven, verse 7. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads what? The whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. The very ideas, the very symbols of the gods in Pergamum were serpents and snakes and dragons. This great accuser, this one who leads the world astray, is finding great residence here. Now, if that was not enough darkness for Christians to be living among, I also mentioned that this was a center for emperor worship. They had the oldest temple dedicated to this cult. In 29 BC, Augustus declared that he was the son of God and the prince of peace, and it was okay for them to worship him as that in this city. And as you approached the city and you looked up towards the altar of Zeus, near it was the huge temple dedicated to Caesar himself. And like I quoted last week, upper and lower class Christians and everyone else were required by local law to sacrifice to Caesar. If you went to a parade, if you went to the YMCA, if you did anything in normal society that we would do, you were made to burn incense or you were made to give actual uh, sacrifice to Caesar. And you had to declare these words, Caesar is Lord. Suddenly, you have a choice because now you know who the true Lord is. Interestingly, too, the Jews of this period believed that this city was going to be slated for divine destruction by God at the end of time, like Sodom and Gomorrah, because it was the heartbeat of blasphemy and was the head in that area of human idolatry. See, if you read the book of Revelation, literally and metaphorically, from beginning to end, you will see that Satan has grand influence in the Roman Empire, specifically in the West in Rome, and now in the East in Pergamum. Now, in the middle of all of that chaos and spiritual confusion and Caesar worship and literally Jesus saying, you just may think it's actually a fake throne, but something else is going on. Then he says these words in verse 13, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. And he says it again, just to reinforce it, where Satan lives. They live there. And their greatest adversary lives there. And a man named Antipas, who is a person that you will meet if you are a Christian one day in heaven in the New Earth, he had been arrested, interrogated, and murdered because he would not put his own life or any other idol or any other idea in front of his allegiance to Jesus. So this local church is standing up under great pressure 
They're living in the provincial capital where execution can take place very quickly. They're living in the very same locality where supernatural incarnate evil, the same serpent that was actually tempting Adam and Eve, the same one that faced off with Jesus, is living among them. They're also at the heartbeat of Caesar worship. And one of their friends, just imagine one of our friends here, has already been murdered because they love Jesus. So Jesus comes and thanks them. But then he says something else. See, when Jesus shows up to speak, he speaks the whole truth. Not just part of it, everything. And he comes and says, though I'm so pleased with you, then he says these words in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Now, have you ever had someone in your life come to try to give you some constructive criticism? Raise your hand if you've had that happen. Okay. And yeah, everyone's nervous. Now, if they do it right, it's okay. But you're always getting ready, right? You get defensive like you're about to get hit. Can you imagine Jesus, the Son of God, heaven and earth, coming and saying, I'm so pleased with you, but we need to talk. He comes and says, I have a few things against you. One wrote these words, correction is essential in spiritual direction. I have this against you. The church, I love this, attracts to itself persons who like to live in the atmosphere of holiness but have little interest in being holy themselves. They find delight in working on committees in church and finding security in ordering their lives with the reassuring traditions of their fathers. They're, they're faithful to show up on church on Sunday mornings and fortified by listening to moral instruction by their teachers, but somehow they have no appetite regularly for holiness, joy, or love. They're holy, conventionally, entirely dull. The church is sought out as a sanctuary for living as a pious sloth. Therefore, the church needs continually to be in reformation. And Jesus needs to say to us and them, I love you, but I have these things against you. So the question you should be asking, I was this week, is, well, what did they do? I mean, what has happened that while they're standing for Jesus and even someone's been murdered, Jesus still needs to come and say, we have a problem. Well, this is when things get interesting for them. And I want to say this morning, for us here this morning, very much so. Verse 14. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols, and they've committed sexual immorality. Now, this is a direct reference to the Old Testament when the people of God chose to play both sides of the fence. They chose to worship the God that had saved them out of Egypt, and they decided to worship other gods. And the compromise was connected between sex, food, and religion, and it produced terrible brokenness. Here's the background. Balaam, or Balaam, was a great sorcerer, the real deal. He wasn't on some psychic channel and a fake. He's the deal. He was hired by another king to actually curse the Israelites, to stop them supernaturally because they were invading the promised land. Every time that Balaam went to go curse God's people, God wouldn't let him, and he ended up blessing them. Isn't that great? So every time he went to curse them supernaturally, he ended up blessing them. We got so frustrated, and the king got so frustrated, and they knew they could not supernaturally overcome God through power. Balaam came up with an idea. He gathered a bunch of women from Moab, and said, ladies, it's time to get it on. You need to go and offer yourself to the men of Israel and give them free sex. Off you go. This is going to save our nation, so off you go. So this is what they did. They went and they enticed the men. 
nice old word. And here's what happened. Numbers 25. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who God, by the way, said you're not supposed to do this with, and invited them suddenly to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate sacrificial meals and bowed down towards their gods. So Israel, noticed the marriage language, yoked themselves to Baal of Peor, that's a false god, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Here's what happened. The plan was successful. He tried cursing them. He couldn't. So he offered free sex. The guys bought into it. And this is what the women said. Listen, you can come and have sex with us as much as you want. It's going to be really exciting and it's free. But all you need to do is come over here and we're going to actually eat a meal while we have sex together and we're going to worship our gods. Are you okay with that? And the guys went, yeah, okay. And, and, right? and, and off they went. If you're being offended right now, breathe. This is scripture. I'm not inventing this. Right here, you online, don't write me emails. So, so, this is what happens. And they give in to idolatry and adultery because, of course, the devil's brilliant because he always combines sex, food, and religion. Always. So now, Balaam becomes a code word in the Bible for any Christian or non-Christian teacher that teaches this. Are you ready? You can be okay with the living God of heaven and earth, and you get to also play with darkness. It's all okay. We have people here saying this in in this time. Accommodation is the easiest and wisest policy. You can live in, in, in a peaceful coexistence with Rome. You can still have your past and have your present. It was expressed in two ways. They were worshiping Jesus and still the gods they've been saved from, and they were also doing sexually what they wanted. Now, food to idols here in in Pergamon, this is important, is not what they were buying off the street. Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians. This was connected to trade guilds. So if you were a carpenter or you were a stonemason or you were a poet, you were part of these guilds. And you'd go and it was connected to your livelihood. But when you gathered as a guild, part of the meal that you'd have together as you discussed policy in your future was you had to sacrifice and eat meat to the idol that you dedicated your guild to. So you have Christians now asking themselves the question, am I going to lose my job if I don't sacrifice? And the answer is, they would. Then you had other Christians saying, well, I, just, I, wanna, I don't really believe Caesar's Lord, but fine, who cares, I'll just burn, burn this over to him. And so you've got this going on all through Pergamum, and then you've got teachers coming and saying, by the way, it's okay, you're going to be fine if you do this. And then you have other people also then actually sexually be involved in things they're not supposed to. So you've got Caesar and food and idols. Sexual morality, by, by the way, means consensual sexual acts outside of what God defines as marriage. So self-worship and idol worship, and yet you're still claiming to be a Christian and Jesus is Savior and Lord and I've been baptized, everything's okay. He says in verse 15, likewise, you also have those that hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Well, that's the same version of Balaam. They started teaching this. They started saying, hear this closely, I can do whatever I need to or want to because because I am free in Jesus. Jesus has forgiven me for all my sins. I have spiritual liberty, so I can do anything I want sexually with my body or religiously because I've got fire insurance. Jesus shows up and says these words, repent therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword in my mouth. Repent. Do a 180. Don't just come to the front and cry about it. Change. 
This is not about being a good person, a moral person. This is worship. Obey the one that you are already in relationship with. Love the person, the one who brought you life. Stop thinking or doing the very things I've told you are wrong because my yoke is light and their yoke brings death. Now notice, he says to the church, not everyone's done this. But what they had not done is they had not stood up in their congregation and said to people who were promoting this, what you're teaching is wrong. Either you repent from that or you need to leave the church. That is the heartbeat of this. And so Jesus comes and says to the whole church, repent because you may have stood publicly for me, but inside the church you're not standing for me. And then he says, you need to understand this. If you're one of the people promoting this, I am coming for you. I have a sword in my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you hearing? Are you listening? Are you, are you at the place where you can see what Jesus is saying to you, to that church, to us? Jesus says, if you choose to be faithful, here's my promise to you. And he outlines it in verse 17. To the one who's victorious, I will give some hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name that's written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, again, you read this metaphorically, and you go, I, I don't understand the symbols. Here it is. Manna was given to Israel's people, Israel in the time of the Exodus. They had nothing to eat, and God supernaturally provided, basically, bread from heaven. They called it the bread of angels. This was used at this time in history to talk about the new heavens and the new earth. When manna would come again, Jesus, the Messiah, would come and establish his reign. He's basically saying, stand victorious because what I'm going to bring into the future, into the now, will be much better. And then he says, and I also am going to give you a white stone. Now, again, you read this and I'm going, what does this mean? Well, there are three meanings. They're amazing. Number one, at this time, white stones were used as entrance into theaters. Second of all, they were the reverse of occultism. Much of the time, black stones were used in rituals to do magic. And Jesus is saying, oh no, that's not our side anymore. I'll give you something that's pure, not that. But the last one, and the most significant, was this. In court cases, when juries would declare you not guilty, they would take a white stone and put it in, in, in a bucket saying, not guilty. And so what Jesus is saying to this church is, number one, stand, repent, continue to do what you're doing, get rid of this false teaching in your community, because if you do and you are victorious, I'm going to give you hidden manna. In other words, the new heavens and the new earth, it's my guarantee. And by the way, I'm giving you a white stone with your name on it. And here's the amazing thing. You have entrance, you're forgiven, you're adopted. I am declaring you not guilty. Rome may declare you guilty, but trust me, I'm the one in charge, not them. And you have been set free from darkness and occultism you are now white and holy and blessed this is what that white stone means anyone want that stone i do unbelievable and so jesus comes and he says to them stand in summary we have a church that's living and growing in the middle of power beauty in the middle of cultural influence and we see the pattern emerging jesus comes to ephesus and says love me more he says to smyrna keep suffering and he says in pergamum obey the truth they had stood One had died, and yet still, on the other hand, they were compromising. Great standing and great works plus bad theology always in the end leads to compromise. Here's the thing we need to all hear this morning. We cannot take the Christian message and make it thoroughly respectable. The theological and ethical laxity is about Christians slowly assimilating into their culture around them instead of being Joseph, Daniel, Jesus, or Paul. You cannot love, love without truth, and you cannot have truth without love. And here for Pergamum, truth was myth- missing. 
And it all boils down to one word. And if you're disconnecting, if you're going to your iPhone, stop and look at me. This is about compromise and not in the good sense of compromise. The bad sense. When knowingly or not, Christians become indifferent to wrong. Here's how one of my mentors described this this condition. He called it split-level Christianity. He said, most Christians live on two unreconcilable levels. They're members of a church and they ascribe to a, a statement of faith. But below that system of conscious belief, there are deeply embedded traditions and customs implying a very different interpretation of the universe or the world of the spirit from the Christian interpretation. And I love this. And in times of crisis... In times of crisis, you really begin to understand that what you think intellectually about your faith and how you act tends to be very different. He says the church becomes an alien thing in times of crisis. So here's the question this morning. It's difficult. How do we talk about compromise to Caesar, to Zeus? How do we talk about compromise in the living in a middle-class society on the outskirts of Toronto as Christians? Now again, what I'm about to preach on is directed at Christians. What is our compromise? What could we be doing? When have we crossed a line? Well, let me say it. You will know that you are allowing Nicolaitans into your your mind, that Balaam is stalking your house. And you'll know it very quickly in the next five minutes on your views of Jesus and his uniqueness, the power of the gospel, your thoughts and acts about sex, and your view of ownership and things. Listen very closely. Number one, your view of Jesus and his unique work will tell you if you're in danger of Jesus coming to you and saying, I have this against you. You cannot, as a Christian, reduce Jesus to who you want him to be. He is not just a good teacher, not just a prophet, not just a profound thinker, not just a great man of history. You cannot reduce him, by the way, either to your version of love. He is holy love. You must hold fast to the truth that Jesus is fully human and fully God. That he is, ready? Here it is. The only, the only incarnation of God in human history. That he is the only one that can forgive sins. That he died and physically rose again. He is not the Christ consciousness. He is the living Jesus. There is only one path to God. Only one road to God. There is no other way to meet God or know God or even experience God fully and exclusively only through Jesus. Only through the world power, and presence of Jesus. Can anyone be made in right standing before God? He's the only one who can forgive sins because he's the only one who has the power to deal with them, and he's the only one who took on sins. He is, at the heartbeat, the only one who can deal with humans and give account to, sorry, only one who can actually bring us to God himself, and he is the only one that humans will give an account to. If you start saying in that, in that sort of connection, no, I don't believe this, then you are beginning to compromise. This is not about being dogmatic. It's about being authentic to Jesus. When Christians begin to start saying, well, Jesus is great and I love him, but there are other paths, you violate the teachings of Jesus. When you start saying, well, I'm not really comfortable because I know so many good moral friends that are part of other religions, and I would say, so do I. But it's not about our morality. It's not about how good we are. Scripture is clear. We are all sinners before God. We are all hopelessly under the judgment of God because of our own sin. And someone from heaven needs to step in. We can never get up to him. If you start compromising with Jesus and his uniqueness, the Nicolaitans are in your house. Here's the second way you compromise. Your view of the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
It is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, Jews and non-Jews. The gospel is the good news. It's embodied power. It is, the, it is about the one person that can deal with every question and deal with every person's need on earth. Every person you have ever seen in your life can be, can be made whole again by Jesus. Salvation is believing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, what was confessed in the baptism tank today. Salvation comes through giving up on your own goodness, your own works, your own knowledge, your own wisdom, your own, your own trusting in yourself and saying, I, I trust in Jesus and his work. There's such power in that because we aren't responsible in the end. Now, here's the point. You will know, you will know that you begin to compromise as a Christian when you begin not to share this. Now, I'm not saying you all need to be evangelists, because we talked about this in our spiritual gifts deal. Some of us feel the burden of never bringing all sorts of people to Jesus. No, no, you're not an evangelist. Breathe. Let them do that. But when we start saying things in middle-class churches like, well, I'm just going to live a really good Christian life, and that's all I'm going to do, compromise. You and I are called to live a profoundly countercultural holy life, and we are called also to share in our own words the gospel with people. You have to articulate the good news to people. You just cannot live a good life and say, you know, I'll live a good life and sometimes preach. No, no. The gospel is live the life that Jesus has given you and tell others. What's now happening, and this is true, I've read the statistics, is the vast majority of evangelical Christians have never in their life sat with a friend or a neighbor and verbally explained the gospel to them. Compromise. You cannot just live a Christian life. You have to also articulate it. Because as it says in Scripture, how will they know unless you tell them? Many of us said, well, it's just scary. Or, or, you know what it is? I think some of us actually don't believe the gospel has power anymore. It's too big. It's too complex. The world's too small. The technology's too big. Uh, no, no. Paul gets it right. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It has the power. It has the power. It's not up to you or your personality. You don't need to be Billy Graham. You just need to be authentic and say, can I tell you what Jesus has done? But if you step back and say, I don't ever need to do that, compromise. The larger one and more difficult one, and this is when everyone starts squirming and some people start leaving, is this. It's when we talk about sex. We as Christians fall hard here in the West I want to remind you, as I was wrestling with Jesus this week, I give this to you as a fellow journeyer. We're married to Jesus as Christians. That is, we're in covenant with Jesus and how we think and act about our bodies matter. I'm not talking about struggling with sin. Hear me closely. I'm not even talking about temptation or being inclined sexually one way or the other. Struggle, hear me closely. Struggle, sexual orientation, and temptation is never the real issue for the follower of Jesus. It is when we begin to justify, affirm, or act out sexually against what the Bible teachings, what the Bible teaches on sexuality, and then say it's still okay between us and God, that's when we're in trouble. I'm talking about justifying sexual acts of any form that Jesus our King, who I remind you is the God of the Old Testament in flesh, and he cares for us, has said you may not do these things. We may not, as Christians, justify for others or ourselves things that the Bible is clear on. Now, you will know that you have crossed the line into compromise and you've burned things to Caesar when you start believing these words. When you start saying, God would never deny my natural desires. Really? Interesting. 
Or I don't need to explain myself to you or anyone else because I'm just fine. Or God made me this way. Or as long as we're consenting, it's okay. Or the most often used is, if no one's getting hurt, well, that may be the thinking and the foundational ethics of our culture. But, and hear the caveat, but for us who claim to be followers of Jesus, I'm not speaking to anyone else. I'm speaking to people who have willfully yoked themselves to Jesus as Lord. For we who have said to Jesus, yes, your life, not my life, we cannot believe those things. That is split-level Christianity. It is syncretism. It is saying that what we believe, feel, or experience has more power than what the Bible teaches. This is a matter of worship, of truth, authority, and humility. Paul got it best in 1 Corinthians 6.15. Do you not know, Christian, that your body, our bodies, are members of Christ himself? So then, uh, so shall I take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? This is talking about, by the way, the whole thing of Balaam again. Having sex with a prostitute dedicated to a god. Never. Do you not you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Let me add. Or any time you unite yourself with anyone, you become one with them. For it is said the two shall become one flesh. But he or she who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in the spirit. And then Paul says it. Flee. Run. Run. Run from sexual immorality. All other sins a man or woman commits are outside their body. But he or, he or she who sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? And here it is, everyone. This is the grand violation between us and our culture. You are not your what? Say it. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Here's the thing we need to get as Christians. We do not own us. Jesus is our master, and we are his willing slaves because we made the decision that we would be terrible masters. And he who is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, he'd be a way better master than me or you or the government or the world, right? So we don't own ourselves. The great debate that happens sexually in our culture, you hear it in the abortion debate, the sexuality debate, and a hundred versions. It's my body, I can do what I want. Fine, you can say that, but I can't anymore because I'm a slave to Jesus. I'm a slave to Jesus. No, well, so this fundamentally at heart means that we begin to compromise when we begin to say, I'm not going to tell you what Scripture says seriously on this matter. Here's the last one, and I'm done. You will know that you have begun to compromise when it actually comes to materialism and ownership. We live in a culture where material prosperity, individualism, human rights, and freedom are king. Now, within measure, all of that's good. We need human rights. But when my right or my personal destiny or my own worth is king, that's sin. If I am, caveat again, a Christian, I don't own my money. I don't own my house. I don't own my RSPs. I don't own my wife. She's like, amen to that. Okay, yeah, yeah. But I don't own her. I don't own my children. Jesus owns them. I have the grand privilege as a Christian living in this life of being a steward of God's things. Is that saying, John, I can't enjoy life? No. 
Enjoy life. Go to good restaurants. Have fun. God did not create us to have a dull life and then the real one happens next. This is in part now what's coming in the future. But have you ever considered as a Christian you should ask permission of Jesus before you buy things? Before you make investments? Before you think on things? I mean, I'm sure someone with significance said, uh, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added to you. The problem is many of us view what we own and what we have as ours. It's not ours. It's His. It's His. One of the best summaries of this temptation was articulated like this. When a scholar said, self-possession, not demon possession, is the greatest danger facing human beings. It is hard for Christians to move from feeling like they need to control their lives to entrusting themselves completely to God's mercy and His will. We as Christians living in the West have a grand responsibility, like every Christian does. We are called to live out a faithful Christian life in the middle of the greatest amount of money in history. Even though we're in a recession, it still pales compared to the rest of the world. We are called to live a faithful Christian life in a culture that is now declaring that sexuality is everything and anything, and we have to say no. We have to be people that declare that we don't own our bodies, we don't own our money, we're desperately in love with Jesus, we're his slave, we want to see his kingdom, not our kingdom, come onto earth. We have to be in the place where we proclaim the uniqueness of Jesus, not out of arrogance, not like a jerk. You don't need to be downtown with a big billboard screaming at people. It doesn't work usually. But we have to hold to the uniqueness of Jesus, and we cannot be ashamed of the gospel in a pluralistic, multicultural world. We live and we will continue to be pressured, hear me, in Canada to accept a worldview, and here it is, rooted in cultural acceptance or biblical revelation. While culture may continue to evolve its thoughts on all sorts of things, the Bible does not evolve on certain things. We can listen and decide as Christians to ignore the Bible's teaching on Jesus, the gospel, on sexuality, on ownership, Or we can actually begin to live with the fact that the Bible is quite clear in certain things and recognize because of that, our reputations as Christians will suffer. And then we need to ask ourselves the question, well, John, I thought this series was on joy. You didn't even mention the word. Let me tell you something about this. Jesus comes to C4 Church and says to us, I am telling you that eternity is longer than 75 years. I will give you hidden manna. I will give you a white stone. I've revealed myself as truth. Have you ever just had joyful conversation with Jesus and worshipped him as truth because you can trust someone finally? Just a side note, great experience. But he comes and he says to our church, I will give you everything you need to survive in the now and be a bold witness and not a jerk while you're doing it, a kind, generous person. But I am reminding you that this life that you are living right now is not the end. 75 or 85 years is nothing compared to eternity. So stand and just stand and be kind and generous, but also be bold in your faith. Do not worry. And as you stand, ready? And as you suffer, as you suffer, 
more and more and more as a culture begins to say you're backward, historic, you're totally out of touch, you're mean, you're rude, and the list will go on and on. You will find joy. Why? Because you will begin to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. And Paul said in Philippians, as you suffer for him, he will give you profound joy. This at its heart is a call for us to understand one thing. And I'm done here, so Dan, you can come up. It's this. This is a call for the lordship of Jesus in this church. Because we have sworn that he is Savior and Lord. This is a call for us who live in the West to not be ashamed of the gospel, not be ashamed of Jesus, to struggle authentically, wrestle authentically with sexual questions. We can't have pat answers, but we need to come down and realize that at the end of time and at the end of the day, our movement is based on a relationship with the Lord Jesus who is very clear on how he wants us to live our lives. Some of you will sacrifice more than others, but all of us are called to be very, very grounded in the scriptures. How we use our bodies matters. I don't care if you are heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual. That's not even the conversation. The conversation at its heart is this. Are you all, are we all going to submit to what Scripture says? If God says no, then you say no. If God says yes, then you say yes. You say, Lord, you are my Lord. And it is a call for all of us, especially in this church, to get on with dealing with ownership and money. Jesus owns our stuff, not us. Our grand prayer as a church should be, oh, Lord Jesus Christ, what would you have me do with my things, with my influence, with my time, with my money? Because I realize that this world is actually not the full deal. Your kingdom lasts. How can I serve you today? And don't take this as a moral tirade because all of this is connected to a deep, burning love relationship that I'm presuming that you have. Because the more you love Jesus, the more you'll give up things. The more you'll be willing to sacrifice. The more you'll struggle with him. The more you'll say, oh, I cannot wait for your kingdom to come on earth. Lordship, lordship. There's lordship. And where there's lordship, there's freedom. So let's pray and see what Jesus does. Because it's, I don't know about you, but I really struggled with getting ready this week with this. Because I had to admit, forget the title pastor compromises closer than I thought. So Jesus, a few things to pray about. Number one, I pray that our community would be a community full, first of all, of the character of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We need this character so much as we talk about these things. Lord Jesus, we confess that some of us have actually We've actually played with your uniqueness. We've played with your work. Forgive us. Others of us admit that we've been ashamed of the gospel and we just do not believe in our heart it has power. Forgive us. Many of us, almost all of us, I think all of us would say we have chosen to do sexual acts and things that we knew were wrong and forgive us. Lord, for uh, many among us right now and here online who have deep questions for you because this is very difficult. I pray for honesty, transparency, truth, no judgment, but the reality of what you really teach and what you call, and I pray for the joy connected to it. And I pray lastly for all of us when we deal with money and things and eternity, that there will be a growing sense of the lordship of Jesus over what we are and what we own and what we have. 
Lastly, I pray that anything I said that was not of God would fall to the ground. Only those things that are truthful would stay. I pray against misunderstanding. I pray against confusion and the distorting of things by the evil one or anyone else. And we just pray, Jesus, I just, this is how I end. Your lordship is welcome among us. It is welcomed because you're a better master than any of us could be. Come do your work among us. Keep doing it. We pray as we've been praying for two years now. Revival, real, genuine, life change revival. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.